<laughs> I see we have some super fans. If you guys want to outvote us, we can just <laughs> We could just do that for the rest of the... Excellent. Um, okay, so I think we are going to dig in. So first of all, um, housekeeping, there's um, evaluations that have been passed out and stuff. I just have to remind everybody to please fill them out. Give us tens all around. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. So we're going to dig in. Uh, so basically what you have in front of you is a panel full of mega Hamilton nerds um, who... <laughs> We're very excited by, um, by the show and also just by what we saw it inspiring kind of in the public sphere and in the public square around history, around music appreciation, around theater and like kind of the intersection of all those spaces. Um, and so we really wanted to take this opportunity to um, just kind of share some of those observations and to kind of share some of the influences that it's had on our own practice um, and some of the lessons that we've taken away so that you can take them back to your own institutions. Um, okay, so what lessons can we learn? Um, so the intersection of historic and contemporary themes, deliberate inclusivity, collaboration, commitment to the highest artistic and intellectual ideals, um, Hamilton's creators ensured an experience that informs and inspires without idealizing, right? They kind of throw that into question a little bit. Um, as museums strive to diversify stories and audiences, how can we leverage the lessons from Hamilton to move towards a more inclusive future? So what are the, what are the big takeaways for us? Um, we have Steve Light here, who's manager of tours, of house tours at Monticello. We have Kate Quinn at the end, who's the director of exhibitions and public programs from the Penn Museum, and Becky Schloman, coordinator of education at Indiana Historical Society. And I'm Stacy Mann. I'm an independent um, experience designer and interpretive planner based out of Philadelphia. And I kid you not, I can see Ben Franklin's house from my apartment. So <laughs> this is mine, legitly, <laughs> legit. Oh. Anyways, um, so we are going to move through things probably as quickly as we can. And we're going to ask people to hold questions to the end. Um, and uh, yeah, we've also got our little tags there, so if you happen to be live tweeting or sending out messages, please use the AASLH17 and Hamilton, and it will trace back to us. Okay, so what time is it? Thank you. Like I said. So, um, at the end of this, we're really hoping, obviously, again, that you guys are going to come away with lessons, um, some that we've learned, and maybe you'll draw kind of some of your own connections as well. Um, You'll recognize the hat. Um, so I think what really excited me when the show first kind of came on to, uh, exploded onto the scene was the fact that it really was this trifecta, right? It provided these different entry points into a single content source. So if you were a theater nerd, you could kind of come in through that door and it introduced you to history and hip hop. If you were a history nerd, you could come in through that door and you got a little bit of the theater and the hip hop. If you were a hip hop head, you would come in through that door and you'd get introduced to all of these things. Like it was a, it was a giant mashup of these three things, but done in such a, like an intense way that they all worked really, really seamlessly together. And if you happen to be all three of these, then it was like nirvana. 
Um, but it was really, it was exciting to see friends of mine who were not necessarily theater people, but who had one of these other two things, one of these other hooks, that they were getting equally as excited. And it was introducing them to a whole new world and a whole new um, language that they weren't really even, they didn't realize they were missing in their life. Um, and the other thing is that I also recognize that this was not, it's not singular. Like it, Hamilton is a juggernaut, like no doubt, but um, it fits within a larger landscape of other projects that have come before that kind of fit into this space, right? Where they're, they hit both of this entertaining thing where they're really engaging and entertaining, they're accessible, um, but they're also rigorous, right? They're really smart, they don't dumb down content, they're playing to our highest ideals and really pushing us to think and make connections in new ways. Um, huge West Wing freak. Uh, Band of Brothers, I don't know if people are familiar with Band of Brothers from HBO, John Adams. Um, there's a lot of these kind of projects that have um, become more, um, I would say more prevalent over the last 20, 25 years. Participant media, a lot of the work that they do, um, they've really like made a, a niche out of kind of social, socially progressive uh, movies and programs and that kind of stuff. Um, so a lot of the work that they do is kind of in the same vein. Um, but so Hamilton fits into a larger landscape um, where this work is being done and it just does it in such a compelling way. Um, but they have something that a lot of these other shows and a lot of these other projects don't, which is radical diversity, right? Where they were being disruptive in how they decided to um, go about their casting. They were unapologetic about it, um, and they were intentional in the sense that the juxtaposition of the stories that were being told and the people whose stories were being told, putting them in bodies that didn't necessarily match, really forced people to kind of see those characters and see those stories through a slightly different lens. Um, I really should have written the quote down, but I know David Diggs, when he was they were, someone had asked him like, what is it like playing Jefferson? And he was like, I never really felt connected to US history or to American history until this role, because it forced me to find the humanity in this person that I had kind of written off because he was a slaveholder. And it forced even him to kind of see it differently. And you know, the way that he played the character, it you know, brought it to life in a way that, you know, if you've ever watched 1776 or something, like it's not the same Jefferson, right? Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so I think the, the fact that it was truly inclusive, um, the fact that they tried to flip the script, they tried to kind of put things together in a slightly different way that forced your perspective off of center just a tiny bit, um, it really opened up the conversation about who are these stories for, who are they about, um, who gets to tell them, right? Um, there, was, there was a little bit of backlash at the same time with this, um, with the casting choices. I mean, there was pushback that like, well, why can't white people like audition for these? And it's like, well, you can audition, it's inclusive, which means that the role can be played by many different people. They've talked about casting women in the role of Hamilton or in the role of Jefferson or Madison. I mean, they've talked about really just kind of throwing all of the rules out the window and making sure that they're casting people that are bringing these characters to life in the most robust way, as opposed to they fit within a specific square. So now we're gonna pass it on. All right, you ready? Awesome. thanks. <laughs>
Thank okay. You. Can you help me get to the Facebook screen? Absolutely. Do you need to? Do you want to start there? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> are we? Do, are we literally going to do this? Not really. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. The dance portion of the. <laughs> nope. Oh, nope. That's not what I wanted. Wait. Go back. Go back. Sorry. There it is. Okay. There we go. Awesome. I don't know if we can get it up there. Yeah, no, it's not going to be up there. Sorry that we can't hear the sound very well, but oh, it's not on the screen. No, we can't get on the screen. Oh, right on. Okay, well then so. it's okay. We will play it. We can okay. play it. That's fine. Let's turn the volume up. So. so should we do it or not? Yeah, you just, no, you can, it's not on no, the. I know, but I was going to say you could play just the audio. Oh, okay. Let me play you a little audio. I'm sorry that you couldn't see the video, but at least you got to hear um, the audio. And now we don't want to hear the Game of Thrones trailer. <laughs> Tempting. Tempting. Thank you. I appreciate it. Can you tell I'm not a Mac person? All right. Well, hello, y'all. I'm Becky Schloman from the uh, Education Department at the Indiana Historical Society. Um, on December 11th of 2016, IHS presented an improv hip-hop musical called Harrison, not Hamilton, Harrison, um, which uh, was very much created in the vein of Hamilton, and we had some mixed success with this uh, program. So I want to tell you a little bit about the context of how Harrison came to be, tell you a little bit about the show itself, and then talk about what are some takeaways. How can you use uh, what we learned from Harrison at your institution? So this is the poster for Harrison. Um, Indiana became a state in 1816, so 2016 was our bicentennial. Um, and it all culminated on December 11th of last year, which is statehood day, so that was like the actual day. Um, so rewind in time with me a little bit to August of last year. Um, Indianapolis's Fringe Festival is happening, and uh, Hamilton fever is kind of sweeping the nation. Oh, thank you. OK, can you hear me? OK, a little bit, yeah. Um, so Indie Fringe, like fringe theater festivals everywhere, is um, a theater festival devoted to 
basically short and weird theater pieces, right? It's theater that wouldn't necessarily fit into a more traditional institution's theater season. Uh, and so last year, the show that everybody wanted to get into at Indie Fringe was Harrison, and it was really hard to get a ticket, but I know people, so I got one. And I went, and I loved it. And it turns out it was a story about Indiana becoming a state. Um, and as you can see, they very much drew intentionally on the Hamilton audience. The connections were not... Um, coincidental. Um, and so while I was sitting there watching the show last August, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could present this at the Indiana Historical Society on Statehood Day? That's exactly what we were able to do. So on December 11th, we presented two performances of Harrison, followed by talkbacks. And we'll talk some more about what um, that looked like. So Harrison is the story of three founding fathers from Indiana and how their stories intersect. So it's the story of William Henry Harrison, who of course would go on to become uh, the US president, but at the time um, was the very, uh, at 1808 is when the show starts. Um, he was governor of the Indiana Territory before Indiana became a state. Harrison is the story of Jonathan Jennings, who would go on to become the first governor of the state of Indiana. Uh, and it's the story of Tenskwatawa, who was a political and spiritual leader of the Shawnee Nation in Indiana. So the show is the story of these three guys. Uh, they are referred to as three losers of Indiana history uh, in the show and how their lives overlap and intersect. Um, Harrison bills itself as an improvised hip-hop musical. So let's talk about what that means. It's improvised, so it's not scripted. Um, the cast researched this period in Indiana history. The show covers the years roughly from 1808 through statehood in 1816. Um, the cast researched this time period in these three people, and then they picked out 10 real life events from that time period. And those 10 events that really happened were always in the show. So that created the structure, the dramatic arc of the piece, these 10 moments that really happened that were always included. But then the dialogue was all improvised. So every night, obviously, what the characters said to each other was totally different. Um, and then it's a hip-hop musical, so oftentimes the dialogue was being improvised in the form of a song. Not just hip-hop music, but really any kind of contemporary genre. So there were some um, songs that were raps, there were R&B sort of power ballads. Um, at one point they staged the Battle of Tippecanoe as a dance-off, which was really fun to watch. Um, and like a lot of improvised theater, Harrison incorporated audience suggestions. And the way it looked in this case is that as you walked into the performance as an audience member, you were given a slip of paper on which you had to write some pop culture something. So it could be the name of a TV or a movie or a song that you think most people would recognize. And all of those suggestions went into a hat. And before the show, each actor picked one of those suggestions that he or she then had to incorporate into to the performance. So for example, we had one night that I saw it, the actor playing William Henry Harrison also had to incorporate all these Professor Dumbledore references into his performance. And it was really fun um, because the actors were very clever and they were able to do all of those things all at the same time. And they were singing and dancing and it was pretty incredible. I um, mean, it really kept the audience engaged and people really got that there were all these multiple genres going on at the same time. Um, 
we did two performances of Harrison on Statehood Day, uh, and then afterwards we did a talk back with the audience. So the actor stayed on stage to talk about the process of creating and performing the show. And then we also had a historian from our staff who also was part of that, who was able to talk about um, you know, what parts of the show were accurate, what were not. Um, she made some great suggestions about if this part of the show really interested you, how might you then turn that into a research question? What else could you explore uh, next? So that was wonderful. So that's a little bit about what Harrison looked like. Um, and I, I want to acknowledge that it was super convenient for us that in the year of statehood and Hamilton, there was a local theater company that had already created this show that had a lot in common with Hamilton, including a very similar title um, that people wanted to come to that we were able to bring to our institution. So that was really fortunate. That'll never happen for us again. Um, <laughs> But so what are the takeaways? You know, if, if we're not in that situation again, how can we use what we learned from Harrison? Um, I'd, I want us to not ever discount the value of fun at our institution. Um, I have to say, this show was so memorable for me, and I know so much more about these three characters, these sort of founding fathers of Indiana. Uh, I, I know so much more about them now because of the show than I do because of all the reading that I've ever done in my job at the Historical Society. And to me, it was the fun that made that happen. Um, in terms of rigor, yeah, it was not the most historically thi rigorous thing that we've ever done at IHS, um, and that was certainly a drawback. There was a moment at one of the talkbacks where one of the actors said something to the effect of, well, there's not really that much research done on Jonathan Jennings, so I mostly looked at his Wikipedia page, and there was like this collective gasp of horror <laughs> from the audience and from me, because I'm imagining like all of the angry phone calls that I'm gonna get the next day, which <laughs> thankfully didn't materialize, or if they did, I wasn't the one that had to take them. Um, but here's the amazing thing is because we had anticipated that them, something like that might happen because we didn't create the show, right? We just kind of brought it to our institution. We had our historian on stage, and that was a great opportunity for her to say, well, actually, there's a ton that we know about Jonathan Jennings, and we happen to have the collection of his papers here at our institution. They're on the second floor. The library's open right now. Go up and check it out for yourself. And that was wonderful. That was a great save. Um, I think audience and identity is, is going to be a part of the conversation anytime we're talking about pop culture. Um, for us, the show definitely got a lot of 20-somethings in the door, which was wonderful. Uh, I don't know about your institution, but most of our members and most of our visitors are um, skew much older than that. And it was delightful to see some new folks in the door. We know that they came because of Hamilton, or because of Harrison, because they told us so. Um, so I... I want to call back the thing that Darren Walker said to us in his keynote, which is that we need to think not just about the audiences that we're already serving, but of course the ones that we're, we want to be serving and are not. And I think an important way that we can do this, and Harrison is a good example, is by tapping into something that that desired audience is already interested in, whether it's hip-hop, whether it's Hamilton, whatever it is. Find out what they want and then give it to them. Um, 
the show definitely, Harrison definitely helped our audiences identify with some historical figures. Um, I think because there was so much that was modern and accessible about it, uh, just like in Hamilton. Um, and just like in Hamilton, the cast of Harrison thought really carefully about the identity markers of both the historical figures that they were portraying and the actors who were portraying them. So this guy right here, that's Daryl. Um, Daryl is one of the youngest members of the cast of Harrison, and he's playing William Henry Harrison, the title character. William Henry Harrison in Indiana is known for being something of a snob. Um, he was obviously a white man. He owned enslaved peoples, and he sold them in Indiana, even though that was against the law, according to the ordinance, the Northwest Ordinance. Um, and I heard some, so, so how interesting that the cast of Harrison chose to cast this actor in this role. And I heard some of our audience members talking about that as they left the, the theater. So they, they noticed and they got it and they wanted to know why that decision was made. And I love that they had had that conversation. Um, whose history are we telling in performances like this? One of the main critiques of Hamilton is that even though it features a cast of people of color, it's still a story told from the perspective of the white people, and Harrison was the same way. And it's really important as institutions that we continue to think about whose story are we telling, whose um, perspectives are we uh, considering when we're telling those stories. That is definitely something we are working on at my institution. I hope it's something you're working on in yours as well. And finally, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of exclusivity and access. Um, Harrison, just like Hamilton, was not easy to get a ticket to. Most of the performances at Indie Fringe in August were sold out. Uh, and everybody was talking about it, and there was this great social media push for it. Um, and we know, of course, that Lin-Manuel Miranda, in particular, has been so great about doing the same thing for Hamilton. Um, and so how awesome for us that we were then able to say to the Indie Fringe audiences, hey, if you didn't get to see it in August, come see it in December. And it's on Statehood Day. Did you know that Statehood Day was happening? A lot of people didn't know that it was the bicentennial. Um, and it's a big theater, and there's free parking and free admission, and then there'll be some other cool Statehood Day stuff happening too. So we hope that there was some overlap with our other events that day. Um, and so I think that process of something that was very exclusive that like lots of people wanted to get into and they couldn't, and then we gave them a way to access it, that was very, very powerful for us. I know that that's part of how we got people in the door. So I want us to consider that as institutions. How can we create demand and then little by little give people what they want? Um, yeah, I think that's it for me. Uh, we'll do question and answer at the end, so if you want to talk some more, feel free. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. My name is uh, Steve Light, and I'm the manager of house tours at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, which means I'm very excited to be the villain of this panel. Um, <laughs> And to tell you uh, what, whatever the hell it is we do at Monticello. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's a requirement to work that in. Um, so uh, today I want to talk about a tour that um, uh, it was after hours evening experience tour at Monticello that we launched this past spring with some limited dates. And then we're going to be doing it again this fall. 
uh, and also into next year called the Hamilton Tour Takeover. Uh, and I want to look at the, the tour through um, two particular questions that um, kind of framed my thinking about this as um, I became somewhat obsessed with the musical, like many of you I know, because you were all singing earlier. Um, as a history institution, what can Hamilton teach us about the ways we approach specifically the topic, the pra practice of doing history, uh, and how we can present the practice of history to our guests and our audiences? Um, and then in further thinking about some of the lessons of the musical, um, what is our role um, as historic sites in presenting history um, as a lens through which um, our guests can begin to make meaningful connections to issues of today in the modern world. Um, this is something that I think the musical does a really good job of doing, um, and it kind of inspired me to look at how can we do that same thing um, at Monticello. So these were some of the key questions on my mind uh, as I listened to the musical and knew that my colleagues, even though you know Jefferson is one of the villains of, of the musical, um, people at Monticello were definitely obsessed with the musical like many other people. Uh, and uh, we also saw the breakaway success of Hamilton firsthand among our visitors who came to Monticello over the course of 2016 and 2017. Um, it started slowly as a trickle at first. We began seeing some visitors with Hamilton t-shirts. Um, we saw one person that had a Hamilton tattoo. That was interesting. Um, and uh, pretty soon, some of our guides who were really obsessed with Hamilton began to find clever ways of trying to find out who among their audience were really big Hamilton fans. <laughs> so they would just slip lyrics into their tours. <laughs> um, so for instance, we have a portrait of the Marquis de Lafayette in the parlor instead of pointing out Lafayette, a guide would say, well, here we have America's favorite fighting Frenchman. <laughs> and just pause and see. And uh, there was always somebody, m often many people, who would get very excited and occasionally would just bust into the, into the lyrics. Um, the, uh, probably the best example of this that I saw, in, at Monticello, if you've ever been, in the hall, there is actually a bust of Alexander Hamilton. Jefferson had a bust of Alexander Hamilton in the hall. Uh, he placed it on the opposite side of the room from a bust of himself. And he told his um, grandchildren that positioned such a way they would be opposed in death as in life. Um, we had a group of uh, middle school students who came to Monticello, and I was actually there to witness this. The guy in the entrance hall uh, pointed out the bust of Hamilton and said that it was the $10 founding father without a father, <laughs> at which point the entire group of middle school students um, bust out and basically finished the entire song <laughs> right there. So uh, my point in telling you these stories is that um, it was pretty clear to us that the musical was reaching new audiences, inspiring them to engage with the founding of America, uh, and that many of these people were coming to Monticello uh, because they wanted to learn more. Uh, and so we really wanted to find a way to capitalize on that, to capitalize on their um, enthusiasm for this history. Um, now, history institutions can be notoriously slow about responding to pop culture and current events. We've had a lot of discussions at this conference about this issue. Um, we really wanted to try to break out of that mold and to think creatively of ways in which we could connect with these audiences um, and share their passion for Hamilton and, and 
teach them some of the stories of Monticello and Thomas Jefferson. Um, I'll say as a side note, I think we failed at that. It took us about a year to develop the tour. Um, we are a big institution. I think some small institutions probably can move a little bit quicker. Um, but we held a retreat day where um, we came up with several ideas. We created a couple of videos for social media where we used objects in the house to talk about um, themes and content from the musical. Uh, we created a training session for our interpreters that really unpacked the history behind the musical so that our interpreters, when guests came and really wanted to delve deep into Hamilton and Jefferson, that they would be prepared with the tools to, to engage with that. Um, but our um, number one idea was this Hamilton tour takeover. Um, we decided we were going to do an evening experience at Monticello where uh, the guide would go through the house with the group uh, using the spaces of the house and the objects in the rooms uh, to basically uh, explore the story of the uh, feud between Thomas Jefferson and Hamilton. That's the basis for the second act of the musical. Uh, and in designing this tour, we intentionally tried to inspire ourselves through some of the things that we learned from the musical. Uh, so first and foremost, like Becky, we wanted it to be fun. Um, Hamilton the Musical is fun. Uh, and we wanted to allow our guests to share their passion for the musical uh, and to uh, participate in the experience. So one of the things we did as you went through the house was we used a collection of both primary source quotes but from Jefferson and Hamilton, but also lyrics from the musical um, to help people uh, get inspired to kind of think about, think about you know, channeling the uh, the founders, we even used some hand puppets of the actual um, individuals. Uh, and we encouraged them to read aloud and to use those lyrics and primary sources to as jump off points for talking about some of the, some of the ideas that are brought up in the musical. Occasionally, we did encourage people to you know, go beyond just quoting and perhaps perform or do the cabinet rap battles themselves, which is kind of fun. Um, We also wanted to do more than that, though. Um, one of the things that I think the musical does so well, um, and it's already been referenced, is that the musical really drives at some of the very complicated and messy stories of American history. Uh, it does not shy away from being complicated, um, which sometimes, I think, historic sites have a problem of presenting three-dimensional stories of complex characters. So we wanted to replicate that ourselves. We wanted to encourage our guests to think about competing perspectives in history, um, or as Hamilton, uh, as we could quote Hamilton, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Um, the musical encourages people to think about the ways in which the story of history has been shaped, and whose voices are heard, and whose voices are not heard. Uh, it does this um, both uh, subtly, but also sometimes quite literally. So in the song, The Room Where It Happens, um, the very lyrics of the song cast doubt on Thomas Jefferson's lone and unchallenged account about how basically the city of Washington, D.C. got created. As he was explaining his account, the chorus refrains constantly, Thomas claims, Thomas claims, um, but then repeats at the end, but no one else was in the room where it happened. It's basically telling you that you should question this account. Um, it's talking about you know, hi the history practice of 
looking at multiple perspectives. Um, the musical challenges narrative history in other ways too, most dramatically as we've already talked about, uh, through the diverse cast that asserts that the founding does not just belong to white America. The other um, thing that we really in were inspired by the musical is to think about the idea of legacy uh, and history and how they're intertwined. Um, so one of the overarching themes of the musical is this notion of legacy. What is a legacy? <laughs> All right. Uh, so throughout the tour, we wanted to um, continue to ask guests to think about the competing legacies of Jefferson and Hamilton, how their roles uh, in the revolution shaped their visions for the founding of our country. We wanted to talk about their competing visions for um, democracy and government, the role of the average citizen. We wanted to talk about slavery uh, and their views on race and how that has reverberated and continued uh, to be a legacy uh, of the founding throughout American, American history. Um, the musical really gets at the messiness of history. Uh, and I think one of the great myths of the founding era is the idea of a singular group of founders uh, who all joined together in common cause and basically invented America overnight. And I think there's no better visual representation than the famous John Trumbull portrait that depicts the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson, by the way, had an engraved copy of this in his hall. We still have it. Um, and Lin-Manuel Miranda in the Hamilton mixtapes um, explodes this kind of myth of history, I think, uh, rather amazingly. And we use this quote on, on our tour. So he wrote, you ever see a painting by John Trumbull, founding fathers in our line looking all humble, patiently waiting to sign a declaration, not one sign of disagreement, not one grumble. The reality is messier and richer, kids. Uh, and I personally think that should be a tagline for history. The reality is messier and richer, kids. Um, and through creative storytelling, the musical, I think, reveals these 3D complex characters uh, in a compelling way that reveals the human drama behind the founding of America. Finally, the, the last thing that we were inspired by the musical is to think about ways that we could get guests to connect the story of the founding with um, modern day issues and legacies. Um, we wanted to see how our guests viewed the legacies of the founding today. Um, the musical, I think, does this really well by making its story accessible to audiences through um, using modern language, modern music, a, America, uh, a cast that represents modern America, um, and by phrasing many of the issues in the musical through um, issues that people can see resonate with the fault lines in modern America. So there are underlying subtexts throughout the musical that touch on immigration issues, race, class, gender, um, even things like the process of government. Um, and so we wanted to intentionally ask our guests to reflect on this at the end of the tour through a dialogue. Um, so the tour ended with a dialogue where um, we really got guests to try to engage with each other and talk about some of these issues. Um, we asked them if the musical had changed their impressions of the founding, um, what they thought the greatest misperception of the founding was. Uh, we moved on to questions such as, where do you see these Jeffersonian and Hamiltonian battles in our society today? Um, and even, um, whose world are we living in? Are we living in a Jeffersonian world in America? Or are we living in a Hamiltonian world? 
um, or is it an, a mix of both? So just to touch on some of the lessons that we learned, um, and this is still an ongoing experiment. We did um, uh, tours in March, May, or March, April, and May, and then we're going to start again this fall and then have some more dates next spring. Um, number one is the challenge of responsiveness. Um, we started this process in the winter of 2016, right when Hamilton was at its peak popularity. We are like, yeah, let's do this quick pop culture. Uh, let's try to connect into this. And uh, a year later, we were finally, after writing the script, getting the administration approvals, training our guides, advertising, testing the tour, we were finally ready to roll a year later. So we probably didn't do such a good job with that. Um, luckily, Hamilton, I think, has remained relevant. And um, this coming year, it's going to be in Washington, D.C., so we're hopeful um, that it's still going to be a, a big draw. Um, thinking about audience uh, was kind of interesting for us. Um, we kind of missed our target, but in a good way, I think. When we were thinking about the audience that we were going to draw for this, we were thinking about kind of 20-something millennials. Uh, what we actually ended up seeing was mostly families with children aged 12 to 16. Um, that middle school audience is huge for Hamilton. Um, and um, so that was kind of fun. And it was, a, you know, it probably shouldn't have been a surprise to us, but that we thought we were going to get a, a little bit of an older audience than we did. Uh, and then finally, um, and this relates to more current events, if you are going to be responsive and uh, you are going to deal with relevance and modern day issues and challenges, be ready for um, the conversations to change quickly. We are in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, so when we started developing this tour uh, in the winter of 2016, a lot has changed since then. Uh, we've had a presidential election. That's changed the way people view this story and changed the way the, the types of questions that people come with. Um, just last month, we had, of course, the, national, the nationally known events and internationally known events in Charlottesville with the white supremacist rally that turned deadly. I predict that when we start offering this tour again later this week and we get to that discussion portion, a lot of the questions and the discussion that's going to come out of it is going to be a lot different than the discussion that came out of the ones in the spring. So you have to be prepared uh, and uh, willing to um, respond when, when those kind of events happen. I think that's all I have. All right, we're going to try with this microphone. One hundred and fifty million plus total plays on Spotify. Thirty-two million advanced ticket sales for Hamilton before it even went on Broadway. Sixty million plus gross Broadway ticket sales as of April 1st of 2016. 4.3 million views for Hamilton videos on YouTube the number one soundtrack on Billboard charts twice in a row. There is no doubt that Hamilton was an international at this point success. Stemming from the Broadway musical success, you saw $1.5 million committed from the Rockefeller Foundation in subsidized tickets to 20,000 New York City students 
to see the show Hamilton for $10 a piece. 70% increase in visits to Hamilton's former residence in Harlem in 2015, and 24 weeks additional on the New York Times bestsellers list for Ron Chernell's biography on Hamilton. It was a bestseller earlier in 2004, but it hit higher standards once the musical came out. So how did this young, scrappy, and hungry theater professional redefine the American musical, and what is it that we can learn from his success? It is without question that Lin-Manuel Miranda is a genius. He won the award for it, in fact. He's called a MacArthur Genius Fellow. So we have to think about his progress and what it is that he did as a professional and as a professional museum goer and just as a person in the world um, very strategically. He went through this very thoughtfully. Uh, in retrospect, um, I'm sure he would say that it never happened that way. But I'm going to take you through his timeline and see if there are things within what it is that he did in his process over about uh, nine years' time that we can learn. So what did he do? I'll tell you right now, and then I'll bring this back at the end. He paid attention to trends. He followed them, and we'll take a look at why and how he did that along the way. He experimented consistently throughout his entire process. He collaborated with many, many, many people. Uh, theater, of course, is a collaborative project in and of itself. That's just the nature of it. Um, but he collaborated even beyond uh, the theater practice and, and, and expanded out of his, uh, his comfort zone, we'll say. He opened himself up to other ideas. He was willing to listen to people. Uh, he worked really damn hard, as you all do, but taking a look back at what he did through these years, I hope there's something there that we can all learn. Um, and he knew that this idea that he had was bigger than just one medium. He said, I try to let my decisions be guided, not by what I think, what I think will succeed or fail, but what I'm going to learn from that process. So now I want to take you through his process. So let's start back at the beginning. Ron Chanel writes his biography of Alexander Hamilton on uh, April 26th of 2004 is when it was released. It's 800 plus pages. That's a hefty read for even the most dedicated scholar. Um, how many of you here have read the book? How many of you read it before Hamilton came out? Oh, good. Look, there's, we're at a conference for historians after all. <laughs> Not many people did, I'll say that, though, in the research. So in 2008, we'll go to June of 2008. This is when In the Heights is at its heights on Broadway. It wins the Tony for the Best Musical. Uh, the project is considered a, su a success, and Lin-Manuel is riding on the, uh, the coattails of that at that point, but he's also looking for his next project. What is he going to do after this? So he goes on vacation, as we all do after we have a great success. He goes to Mexico, and he's hanging out with his family. And during that trip to Mexico, actually at the airport, he picks up uh, Ron Chernell's biography. And there it is. He, in 2015, tweeted a picture of himself from 2008 where he's lying on a hammock and he's reading the book. There's evidence. This is how this happened. This was the room where it happened for Lynn in 2008. So inspiration hit at that time. What happened after that? Well, he goes to the Grammy Awards in 2009, where he actually wins for In the Heights. It wins Best Musical. Um, what he does at that point in time, I think, is really interesting. He's paying attention to the room. He's looking at the trends. I chose some pictures here for you to see who was winning that year. Adele won for Best New Artist. John Mayer won for Best Male Artist. Um, Alison Krauss and uh, Robert Plant won for uh, Best Album of the Year that year. And I believe that's in, no, it's not in sync. I'm too old, too old. It's uh, one Direction? No, that's Coldplay. That's Coldplay. I'm sorry. It's Coldplay. <laughs> Showing my age. Um, he, they look young there, don't they? <laughs> they look really young. And they're wearing colors. Um, so, <laughs> so Lynn's paying attention to the fact that um, 
well, Grammy's so white. Okay, that year, that's what's happening. What he's taking a look at at this point, though, is what's in the market? What are we missing? And what are the opportunities in the future? At this point in time, in his trajectory, he had read the biography and he's thinking, I want to make a mixtape. I am going to write songs that are going to be a CD. And he's thinking, okay, when I come back to the Grammys, I'm putting words in his mouth or thoughts in his head. But when I go to the Grammys next time, maybe this is something that I can, you know, work towards changing the direction of what is happening in the music world at this point in time. He's not thinking of it as being a musical. So Lynn tweets a lot, and in 2009 he tweeted, and this is just after the Grammys, just a couple months later, uh, I'm writing raps for Founding Fathers on a Saturday night. And he had three comments in 2009. <laughs> Pay attention to the comments as I go through. There are many more tweets to come. So I'm putting this slide up here because this is uh, in 2015, but he's going back to, uh, oh, no, this slide's out of order. I'm sorry. We'll go back to this. So. Um, in 2009, in May, he's invited to go to the White House. And he was invited to go to the White House to, uh, by the Obamas. They were doing a spoken word and poetry session for the first time ever at the White House. And they invited him there to, uh, to do a performance of something from In the Heights, because that had just won the Grammy, and that made a lot of sense to uh, the Obamas and whoever was booking for them at the time to invite Lennon to come to do some spoken word and um, some music from that performance. He decided not to do that, though. He thought, OK, let me take a shot here. Um, I'm going to be at the White White House and let me see if I perform something new and something different. And this is the first time he performs Alexander Hamilton. And he gets a standing ovation for it. He actually, there's videos of this if you want to YouTube it and be one of the 4.3 million people who are YouTubing these things. They're astounded. People are just blown out of their chairs by what they're hearing from this person and coming out of his mouth at this time and the thoughts that are there. So he tweets again after this. This is just a little while later. Just, uh, th sorry, this is, no, this is where the slide comes in. Okay, so he goes back and he says, thanks for booking me at the White House in 2009. It was awfully nice of you and great to meet you and the family tonight. So this is him going back in 2015 to reminisce about his 2009 performance at the White House. Skip ahead for two years. He's working still on this, on this musical. He tweets, uh, just spent a few hours talking Hamilton and life with big homie Ron Chernow. Now singing in an amazing Brooklyn <laughs> Barnes & Noble. So he meets Ron, of course. As, as many of you fans, of course, you know this. He meets Ron, and he starts having conversations with him to learn from a historian what it is that can influence his musical, which is a very different genre. June 2011. I'm testing a new Hamilton song tonight at Ars Nova fundraiser. No cameras. The only way to hear it is to go. He's testing his ideas, OK? So he tests them at the White House, and then he's going to go and test them in other places. He's prototyping is what he's doing, right? He's, he's coming up with ideas. He's speaking with historians. He's getting better idea of how the story and this narrative is going to come together. But he's not just trusting himself with it. He's going out there and performing it. And he's taking feedback from the public, as he's doing with these tweets. He's got 20 people who are following and hearting this right now. So he's gaining in popularity at this point in time. So November 30th, 2011. Uh, starting, uh, starting to line up friends for a Hamilton concert. I think you're going to like George Washington. For real, though. <laughs> How many of you like George Washington? I think he came across pretty great. So that was in 2011. So we're going four years. Now it's really working. Yes, I'm going to go back. Sorry, now it's loud. Um, so let's say the experiment begins. We're going to jump ahead about a year now. This is January 11th of 2012. Um, and this is at the Lincoln Center's American Songbook series. He's invited to do a performance there. And so he uh, goes. And he then does a performance of what he's calling now uh, the Hamilton mixtape. And so he has a series of songs that are coming up through that. December 29th, 2012. I'm past patiently waiting. I'm passionately smashing every expectation, every actions, and act of creation. 
the Hamilton mixtape. Just you wait. It's developing. It's coming together. He's putting it out there. He's tweeting. And I was really struck when I went back to do the research for this presentation of how transparent he was. If you go back through all of his tweets, it's there. It, it was there in 2008, 2009, and 2012. Now he's up to over 1,000 hearts. So he's gaining, <laughs> he's gaining some popularity in 2012. May 2nd, 2013. I think Lafayette wants to rap in French now. <laughs> I have to go learn some damn French. Damn it, Lafayette. <laughs> Hamilton. Uh, so the experiment continues after this. In July of 2013, he's uh, giving performances at Powerhouse Theater. This is called the Hamilton Mixtape. This is performances um, that uh, included, I think Chris Jackson was here for this. And um, oh, there it goes. Um, there, it comes back. Um, so he's experimenting with other people who are performing his songs at this point in time. This is 2013 where he's hearing how his words come out of someone else's mouth and what that means. Uh, January 29th, 2014, in 1818, the widow Eliza Hamilton established the Hamilton Free School, Hamilton Free School, the first school in Washington Heights, New York. Can't stop crying, yes. Washington Heights is where In the Heights was filmed, and so for him, of course, that connection was even stronger. February 24th, 2014, uh, I pulled this out for you. This was Hamilton's travel writing kit. He took it with him everywhere and wrote everywhere. One, uh, I, one can relate, it should say one at once. One can relate, good night. And he wrote that at, I think, at 10.45 p.m. Um, Lynn was known to be writing all the time, just as Hamilton was himself. So at this point in time, we're in 2014, and he has gotten the green light from the public theater to move ahead with having this become an off-Broadway performance. So through the uh, opportunity of having different actors hear and speak and sing these songs, he's realizing that it's more than a mixtape. It probably will warrant uh, being a stage performance in some way. Um, and it's becoming um, narrative, more narrative than it had been had it just been songs. So March 6th of 2014 is when they get the green light, and the public theater announces an off-Broadway premiere of what is still called, um, I'm sorry, what has been changed from the Hamilton mixtape, uh, now Hamilton, part of its 2014-15 series. April 4th of 2014, Lack and, Lack and Blank and Kale were fi <laughs> figuring out who sings what in Hamilton all morning. So this is where he's, he's pulling in uh, stronger collaborators. This is going to become something that um, certainly needs more collaborators than the actors, and there needs to be more perspectives that are coming in. April 16th, it's only a couple days later. What the F was, was going through Hamilton's mind during that last duel? <laughs> All this and more on Lynn places around his apartment tonight. Um, only 184 likes for that one. I don't know why, that was pretty funny. <laughs> April 26, 2014, comes up with brilliant triple rhyme, checks etymology, realizes word originated after 1790s. Curses, starts from scratch. <laughs> Hamilton. <laughs> So July 29th, 2014, this is the, the first ticket frenzy that's coming about for the off-Broadway show. There's buzz out there. Again, when uh, I started that slide at the very uh, beginning of the presentation, they had uh, 32 million advanced ticket sales by the time it got to Broadway. So there was a buzz that was happening consistently um, through the run. So opening night, January 20th, 2015, Hamilton has its off-Broadway opening at the public with Miranda playing Alexander Hamilton. Los Angeles Times theater critic Charles McNulty calls it, quote, one of the freshest musicals to come around since run, bur burst onto the scene two decades ago. And it runs through May, May 3rd. July 16th, 2015, excited to have Questlove and Black Thought of the Roots 
produce the upcoming Hamilton musical cast album this fall. He, Lynn, um, never let go of any of the other ideas that he had early on in the stage of, of how he thought this content could be used. And I was consistently and am consistently impressed with um, the, the multitude of venues that he expresses this content through, that he was impressed by it. He knew there was a story there. He knew there were venues that this could come across. And he didn't stick with one idea. He didn't decide that this had to be a mixtape and he wouldn't move forward without it being a mixtape. He said, oh, no, what I want to do now is it's better suited to be a musical, but he didn't lose that idea. So he connects with other folks, so it still can become um, something other than just a musical. The content goes on. Um, so it hits Broadway August 6th of 2015, to great acclaim, of course. And then in uh, uh, September, it's official, he's a genius. He is named a MacArthur Fellow, um, and he's a genius grant that year. Paybacks come around after that. 2016 Grammy Awards, February 2016, Hamilton wins uh, the Grammy Award for music, Best Musical Theater Album. Um, and the cast performs live uh, via satellite, which is the first time that ever happened. And the awards just keep coming in. April 18th, 2016, Pulitzer Prize for Best Drama. May 3rd, 2016, 16 Tony nominations breaking the record. Uh, May 20th, Hamilton uh, wins Outstanding Production of the Drama League Awards. Uh, June 12th, it wins 11 Tony Awards, including Best Musical. Hamilton Fever, of course, hits right in that time frame and continues. Um, as you know, I'm sure, have any of you gone to see Hamilton? Opening night. Opening night, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> How many of you have seen any ham for ham performances if you couldn't get tickets but could stand out on the street? <laughs> yes. So they did about 97 ham for ham performances while Lynn was still involved with the cast. And this was a way for them to uh, just to connect and to engage with the audiences who, for various reasons, but primarily just lack of accessibility, were able to get tickets to see the show. But they, they went out and they made sure to connect with the audiences um, every day, every day that there was performance. This is some of the, um, the the other work that they were doing beyond Ham for Ham is that, uh, of course, you know, the Rockefeller grant that they received. They, Lynn was a, um, a teacher before he got involved with theater, and he never lost that commitment to children. And he engaged then the cast, and I think everyone who was working with him in uh, working with children and to make sure that those kids who came in understood the potential and the opportunities that exist for them, not only in the theater, but just to understand that there is um, certainly um, different ways to uh, experience success. And so they would come up on stage and he would, uh, they would, the cast would speak with them and talk to the kids and they would win awards um, based on some raps that they had performed or written and or written um, during the course of their time with their classes and then again on stage. Um, the merchandise, there's lots and lots and lots of merchandise. I'm sure you all have some in your home. Someone has a tattoo, right, Steve, of, of Hamilton. Um, I was surprised. I didn't realize that there's a lullaby CD, but there is, Rockabye Baby, and it's all, you have it. Are you nodding? <laughs> is it good? <laughs> it's excellent. Of course it's excellent. Um, so there's lots of merchandise, of course, and that continues. It's another stream to get the word out and just to, um, you know, get, get people more involved and excited about what it is that Hamilton is and will continue to be. After the musical, of course, opened and it was running, the story didn't stop there. He didn't end with the musical opening on Broadway and winning the Tony Awards and winning the Grammy Awards and winning the Pulitzer. He kept going. So October 21st of 2016, Hamilton, Hamilton's America appeared on PBS, and that was a documentary that talked about the making of the musical. It went back into history, and you got to see some of the historic sites, of course, that are connected with the Founding Fathers. After that, with Questlove and The Roots and many, many others on December the 2nd of 2016, 
2016, the mixtape, Hamilton mixtape, finally drops. This was what he dreamed of doing back in 2008 when he was lying on that hammock in Mexico, and finally this comes to fruition. And then to bring it full circle one last time, they're called back to the White House, and the whole cast then uh, sings actually one last time uh, with the Obamas um, to, uh, to, to help them help see their way out, I guess, of the White House, we'll say. So let's go back. I'll repeat this slide here. Um, it was a success, a massive success. It continues to be a success. These stats are all from 2016, and so I know that they're higher at this point, but I couldn't find any directly. Um, and again, this continues to grow. Over 1.5 million people who have been able to get access, kids who have been able to get access to see the show at a subsidized rate. And I'm sure you're seeing increases in your historic sites, and I'm sure there are others that are connected to the Founding Fathers, that there's more interest that's been generated through this musical. So what did he do? He followed the trends. He experimented, he collaborated, he opened himself up to other ideas, he worked really damn hard, <laughs> and he knew that idea was bigger than one medium, and he didn't let it go. He made sure to, uh, to stick with it and to, and to get that, that story out, that nugget of a story that was so important. Um, he made sure to get it out there as many ways as possible. That's a repeat. And he had fun. We had fun. He had fun there. <laughs> um, so that's how Lynn did it. Um, how are you? So I forgot to mention earlier that this is being recorded for posterity. Not sure why. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to make sure that the mic goes around. Okay, and then if you guys can share for answers and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, one of you mentioned, I don't remember who, that one of the major criticisms of Hamilton is its lack of focus on stories that aren't dead white men. Um, and I was wondering if you've been able to use Hamilton in your sites to put some of that focus on people who aren't dead white men. Um, specifically, I'm thinking Monticello, there's a snarky little line in there about Sally Hemings, and I'm wondering if you've been able to, if you've used that um, or at any of these other sites, if and how you've used this story to talk about other stories? Yeah, that's a good, sorry, uh, that's a great question. And um, the answer is yes. Um, I don't know that we went the route, one of the things that was, we were very cognizant of was we didn't want our tour to be like Monticello's response to Hamilton. Like, we all loved Hamilton. History is complicated. I think even though Jefferson's presented as a villain, there's a lot of complexity to all the characters. So did we address specifically like the fact that other stories weren't being told in the musical? No, but one of the things that we did make sure that we want to include on the tour, and I think is in the musical, it's just maybe not one of the central themes, is exploring this divide between Hamilton and Jefferson on slavery. Um, and so we, one of, the, one of the stops on the tour, we made um, sure to talk about both of their childhood upbringings and, and the worlds that they um, lived in and grew up in and how it, it also resulted for them in very different views on slavery and, and had a uh, conversation with our guests about um, Jefferson, Hamilton, and slavery. And then specifically as it relates to Sally Hemings, we did um, talk also about 
um, Sally Hemings, um, and we talked a little bit about their different personalities and the way they responded to controversy because um, a lot of Americans today think that the Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson story was uh, first known in 1998 with DNA tests. It was first known in 1802 um, when a, a journalist basically published an account of it. Um, so we talked about how both of these individuals faced down very public criticism um, with Mariah Reynolds and with, and with the Sally Hemings um, stories in the public sphere um, during their political career. And, and so we did address those things, but I don't know that we went so far as to um, critique the musical. Does that make sense? Yeah. I just wanted to say that the show is also opening in Boston, and I think tickets are going on sale this month. So if anyone you know wants to go, they probably have to call in the first day or something. <laughs> uh, but what I wanted to also mention is that the two CD set, which is affordable to people, has the entire show except for something like four lines, because the entire show is sung. And it has all the words uh, with the CD. So if you can't get tickets to the show, you can see a whole lot of it on YouTube, different scenes, and then you can listen. It is a very moving and sad experience, because uh, obviously it's a tragedy, uh, to just listen to the CD set, and you can get a lot of it from that. I wanted to tell one other anecdote. My husband's involved with Lafayette and um, the American Friends of Lafayette, which has also seen huge interest in membership and participation from the show. And he was giving a talk one time and mentioned one of the raps about Lafayette, and this, again, middle schooler got up and sang the whole thing. Hey, um, so, I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name. Uh, yeah, so speaking to your portion of the presentation, and then the rest of you can feel free to respond, of course. Um, so one of the things, in addition to Hamilton being very successful, is that, well, it was so successful that you know there's this whole issue of getting tickets, who can afford the tickets, people scalping them, things like that. And um, as this uh, woman back here mentioned, that yes, you can have the CD and be able to listen and have your own experience with the show that way. So. Speaking to that idea of accessibility and access and who can afford to travel to go see a show or travel to go to a museum or site versus digital engagement, uh, could you guys speak to sort of how um, public historians can learn from the Hamilton experience in that manner? Um, so there's a few different things. So. Um, they recognized, I mean, I think Lin-Manuel recognized pretty early on that the accessibility was a major issue. Um, that's part of why they partnered with Gilder Lehrman, right, to do the educational programming and to have the $10 tickets for high school classes. Um, and that's something that they've been rolling out in each of the cities that they're going to. So Chicago has it. I think they're supposed to be doing it in San Francisco. They're supposed to be doing it in LA. So that's something that's, that's moving and traveling with the, with the show, acknowledging that it's an issue. Um, They've also, he's also made it, his intentions known that once this becomes available for being produced by high schools and by other, that they're basically gonna either waive 
or significantly reduce the royalty charges. So he's already kind of thinking about how this plays kind of in the long term. I think he recognizes that it's a major issue. I know in London, they've they changed the whole way that they sell tickets. So like you can't scalp them. The ticket literally like belongs to you, and if you can't show up at the box office, you're SOL. So they've yeah. So but my question is, so what can museums? What can museums do? Yeah. Yes. So how can we apply this to our experience in as public historians and people working in museums? Then what can we learn about accessibility from this model? Um, I think partnerships, really smart partnerships. I think it. It would be the inverse, right? They were a theater group and they were working with the Gilder Lehrman, you know, which has, you know, History Day and has incredibly strong kind of relationships with high schools and with museums and um, historic sites. Um, and the inverse would be reaching out to other non, maybe non-traditional partners um, to see what kind of relationships you can, you can cultivate with them. Um, I think someone earlier today was talking about um, partnering with libraries, you know, or partnering with um, different, you know, different clubs or a dance troupe or, you know, people that you would not normally think of being kind of in your target market and find out what can you do to support them. Yeah. Can, can I just respond real quick to, and, and, you know, kind of along similar lines, but yeah, so if you're a museum pursuing some of the same ideas, so find somebody that will give you grants to bring school children from school or you know to to pay for busing to to get your your kids to your site um, and then the other thing i think is a takeaway from this specifically from the ham for ham is go out into your community um, so if people if there's an access barrier from people coming to you go to them and then the last thing is use different mediums to reach your audience so you know, Ham for Ham was so popular that they basically were shutting down the street and they had to basically end it and go digital, but they were able to post those on YouTube. Um, and I'm probably not the only one here that was never in New York City, but watched a whole lot of Ham for Hams on YouTube, right? Um, so there's a lot of different ways that you can, that you can be creative to reach reach um, those audiences. I have a comment towards that, and you did kind of um, address it a little bit, but what, I'm, in the, I'm in the Hudson Valley, I'm in Orange County, New York, so we were aware of this project way at the very beginning. I was at the Vassar reading and you know all of these things years before it came to fruition. But what we learned from it, so something that we learned was intrusive history. So the idea of not ex expecting people to walk onto Washington's headquarters site, but instead having the reenactors walk into the community during community festivals and things that weren't necessarily history events, but just by having the reenactors there showing up and, and doing little performances. Um, so we had, you probably know Steve Edenbow. I do know Right, <laughs> yep. We had, him come, we had him come to Newburgh with uh, Ian Rose. Is that his partner, Ian yeah, Rose? Yeah, we had them come to Newburgh and do um, like a whole tavern day where they just went bar to bar drinking with people in the, ta in the, in the bars. <laughs> And and they, I think they did a small they did a small performance at Washington's headquarters there, but most of their day was spent in the community. And then we realized, taking it away from Hamilton, we realized that um, we could do this with Edison or we and Edison and Tesla and kind of create a dynamic there because we have a we have a story with Edison in Newburgh, um, and and on and on. We've taken characters that have opposing points of view 
and then we've sent them into the community and that grew out of out of the relationship that we had with with Lynn. I love that idea. And Stacy, you used the language in your introduction of being unapologetically disruptive. And I think that's a really good way to summarize what you just said. I also want to acknowledge that um, one thing Hamilton does really well is that the tone of the their sort of outreach, you know, the social media and the ham for ham and all the, the ticketing policies, the, the ways that they reach people who might not otherwise be able to come see a Broadway show, um, the tone is always about you are part of our community. You are valuable to us. We as a show do not exist without you. And I think that's something that we can take. It's not just about advertising our institutions. It's about making our community feel like they are an important part of who we are. And I'm going to take that just a step further. Um, when you first asked the question and we're talking about accessibility and uh, Becky, as you're talking about tone, I think um, something that we didn't really talk about, but Lynn's been compared to, his style has been compared to that of Shakespeare. It's taking the language of the people and projecting this history back and these stories back in the language of the people. So as far as accessibility and the reason why people are lining up and why they want to see so much to do with this, Stacy's touched on it a bit at the start of her uh, presentation. It's because you're actually thinking about your audience and he's talking to people in the way that they would like to be spoken to. Um, so if you're having brawls in the bar and you're having these things that are happening, think about the tone and the language. Is there a way that you could invest maybe with a theater company or as a partnership in some other way to change the language, change the story? It's the same story. It's just a different way of interpreting it. That's, I think, where the popularity is coming in. Now it's time for karaoke. karaoke. <laughs> yes. I think great. Thank you, everybody, so much for coming. We really appreciate it. If you're interested in um, reaching out to any of us and continuing this conversation, we'd be happy to do that. Our business cards are here. Help yourself. Um, and would you please complete that evaluation? Oh, yes. Thank you. Good catch. Thank you. <laughs>